This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello and welcome to The Bunker Daily. I'm Sean Pattenden. When we think of global disasters, we think of major incidents and huge accidents, forces on a scale unimaginable and hard to predict. Yet the job of a disaster planner and expert is to foresee these colossal world events, train the emergency services accordingly and deal with the recovery plan. Lucy Easthope is the one they call when a major incident happens, from 9-11 to the Indian Ocean tsunami, to the London bombings in 2005, to Grenfell. Lucy is an expert in disaster. Having trained at a private disaster management firm, she now runs her own consultancy. She says, collectively, disaster recovery teams are a giant elastoplast for when the worst happens. She attributes her affinity to the job with childhood fascination with logistics. She says, I'm a child of the indomitable city of Liverpool, where tragedy and activism is wired into the blood. Indeed, when Hillsborough happened, while she was still in primary school, she recalls the sorrow and the subsequent outrage, but it also seemed to spark a thirst for the how. Hillsborough made me understand the terrible things that can happen, but also that the people in charge, the state and its agencies, make terrible mistakes. And when they do, often it is the communities that have already been failed who are blamed. Lucy Easthope, welcome to the Bunker Podcast. Thank you. The book is an incredible read, and at times not something for the faint-hearted. Not only does someone involved in disaster planning and recovery have to visit the scenes of major incidents, and obviously very shortly after they've happened, you yourself know coroners and morticians by name, and yet you call it a Cinderella service. How on earth does someone find themselves in a job like this? It has been a very curious path and it's been about 22 years now. So it was a big question, I suppose, as a, as a young adult or as a teenager, how to turn that activism mm. after Hillsborough and other disasters. There was a series of devastating big disasters in the UK in the 80s and 90s that I was very sort of activated by how to turn that into a career. And so I decided to study law. I was Mm -hmm. going to change the system from within, (laughs) take it on head on. And out of university, got a job with a private disaster management firm who is hired for the very worst. So they are hired by governments and airlines and and military to go in and do mortuaries and scene recovery and personal effects. And that was the start of something. You mentioned in the book there's an early incident. You're doing security at Bristol University Student Union, where you are a student yourself, as you say, and an almost fatal accident occurs. But you say much of what you knew was from BBC's casualty programme. <laughs> I actually think the more I think about it, that, that was more defining than I realised. And of course, the whole setup of the way casualty is constructed is the, the, the silvery threads of the risk are shown at the start. You know, the dad doing DIY with a dodgy ladder, you know it's going to go wrong. And, and I do think it's been quite life affirming. But also the first aid advice that when the, the uh, gentleman fell uh, from, a, from a height, not to move him. I had done a first aid course, but Mm. it was from casualty that I remembered you don't move somebody who's fallen from height. But you very much kept your head at this while people were flapping, it seemed. Yes, I think there is a, it's what we call in in disaster management the startle reflex, and it can be very detrimental to your ability to respond. And so that was something 
I think I'd probably learnt to manage. And that's a really great thought, actually, because I think in life and going out in, as a teenager and we would go out in Liverpool, you would see situations. You know, you would see people get in a, in a fight or they'd need first aid. And I, it wasn't the first time I'd encountered that. And so you had a better startle reflex mm. than your peers. That's a good term. The word disaster, as you say, comes from the Latin bad stars. And yet... A point you come back to repeatedly in this book and what we talked about at the beginning is that some major incidents can be foreseen in a way. It's not always fate. Absolutely. And although I enjoy the, the celestial link and, <laughs> and, it, and it's a really you know thought-provoking point, I'm not letting people off the hook with that. You know, I make many points in the book about how disasters that really shouldn't happen as the result of, of, of a state failure or multiple agencies failing are a great source of pain to me. I was fairly astonished. I mean, through many points in the book, disasters do happen so frequently. But to read about the Japanese tsunami of 2011 and the subsequent failure of the Fukushima nuclear plant, this, as you say, was close to being all-out global carnage. Absolutely. And it was one of those disasters that perhaps people don't realise how close we came. Mm. If we'd been planning, we would have probably planned for two parts of that. We wouldn't necessarily have have, uh, tested and trained for both the tsunami and the nuclear aspect, although now we we do. We're very aware of how fragile nuclear power stations are in in earthquakes. But it was a very, very near miss. It had a lot of features very similar to Chernobyl. And I, I describe in the book that was the first time I'd really seen fear proper fear in the, in the colleagues that I was mm. working with. The response to any major incident needs to be swift, of course, but you emphasise how long it takes a community to recover. And obviously each incident is going to be different, but that the recovery plan is really important and you need time, but you also need this idea of understanding, which sometimes seems to not get written into reports, I'm sure. What are the best examples of long-term recovery that you've worked with? There's no end point. The recovering doesn't ever end. Mm. I really like the term that I first saw in the Smithsonian about the use by Native Americans of the term survivance, which is to just continue to survive after terrible events with humour and with a retention of your own culture and with spirit. And so you see amazing things, but you, you know, I haven't yet seen somewhere that has moved on from that disaster. Um, I live quite near a colliery disaster, mm. one of the, the worst actually for death toll in, in, in British history. And there's a new campaign now to properly memorialise it. Uh, I think it's uh, 70 years on. And so you don't see, there's no, you know, no, no concept in my field of closure. But you, t- you do see good days again. You mentioned the impact the job has had on you personally, and you call it an invisible gauze slowly forming between me and the rest of the world. Can you say more about that? Yes, and I think this is something that's really resonated in the response to the book. I've had a quite a, a powerful outpouring from mil- military and police colleagues and others about you know just not being able to talk about their work. It's very common in the support that veterans require, for example, after conflict, that you just you just can't find the words. You know, I say in the book that the words don't form on your palate. You don't want to ruin somebody else's evening, perhaps by telling them where you've been. Even in, I think, you know. In the response to the book, people are saying, gosh, these are these are images that I just hadn't thought about. How are they in your head? And when you have got a family and you've got a you know outside of work life, it's very difficult to talk about what you're you're seeing. And that became I had two lives, you know, I had a home life and I had a work life and, and distinct tribes. How did it affect the home life in terms of you had a husband who was a pilot and you had two children after a series and you talk about them and um, miscarriages. What were you bringing back home? Or, as you say, were you trying not to bring it back home? 
you know, it was very, very distinct worlds. And one of the reasons for that was, you know, uh, knitted into the book is, is my own life and also my husband's life, Tom. And he is training very hard to become an airline pilot and then is a very proud mm. airline pilot. And a lot of the work that I do and a lot of our planning and training is around air disasters. And it just felt that it would, you know, completely destabilise him and, and distress him to bring it home. So it became normal for me to sort of, you know, I had an academic role alongside my response work. It became normal for me to say, you know, have you had a good day, love? Yes, I have. <laughs> and what I was able to sort of draw out as as the book goes on is is more about how we came to talk, things that brought us together with work. And I think that resonates for a lot of couples who work in things like emergency response. There is a point as well where there is this moment where he just understands what you do. And it seems like this breakpoint moment in your relationship. Absolutely. And that that is a really defining moment. It's also a really important moment to explain what an emergency plan does and mm-hmm. what and the importance of this hidden work. So we're sort of brought together, really, because I'm advising on the aftermath of the Tunisia shootings in 2015. And he is selected by the company affected, TUI, who he is a pilot for, to conduct one of the first repatriation flights. And I help them to write the script Mm -hmm. that the captains will then read out. And that for the first time, he sees a number of things. He sees how something so simple, you know, a side of A4 can change how his crew, but also the passengers feel about something. He also sees why it's so time critical. In caring for the bereaved and deceased, you might have to make very fast decisions and you can't wait till, you know, the mini breaks over or, <laughs> the, you know, the trip to the theme park's finished. So he, it was a real moment for us. Because there are points in this book and obviously in your life where you are just summoned away. And as much as you say you're not like a James Bond <laughs> character, you know, you will be in the middle of whatever parents evening or something like that. And you get the call or you get the text and you have to go and respond immediately. Yeah, that's been very difficult. And I think becoming a mother did change how feasible that was. And it's two things. It's A, can you, do you, you know, can you be physically present? Sometimes you do just have to get up and go or that meeting really needs you. And B, it was whether you were emotionally present. So the Grenfell disaster, for example, happened in the June of 2017. And I wanted desperately to attend my children's sports day, which was about, I think, 11 days after the fire. And I was trying to take a number of calls and missed most of the sports day because those calls needed me. And and that that was very difficult, I think. But you can't wait with some of those calls. They have to be done then. The book, as you say, it details your attempts to have children. You describe the nature of miscarriage incredibly viscerally. You are not a squeamish person, and this book it doesn't show any squeamishness. In what ways did your job make it easier or indeed harder to cope with these very personal events, but these very physical bodily events? I think I describe sort of having this this brain in two parts. So one of it sort of desperately trying to be in the moment, and one of it mm. sort of observing, going, oh, well, this is interesting, or I wonder how they're going to handle this scenario, or... Hopefully I can make it easier for them by suggesting this, you know, and sometimes you're urging yourself to really just live in the moment. And, you know, as I think there's a lot of focus on maternity care in the country is quite poor at the moment. Mm. And one of the things about my work was it took me to a lot of different hospitals and it was a general experience that maternity care was a spectrum of total compassion with cups of tea and all the (laughs) things that I talk about in the book Mm. that are important Mm. to people who are both in perhaps physical shock 
and uh, and injured essentially was a, as a, you know something that's a huge part of my work but then at the other end of the spectrum sometimes i was treated very very poorly and it sort of strengthened my resolve really and i think it also gave me an additional strength it was a new insight and I talk a lot in the book about the physicality of miscarriage, which I don't mm. think is often discussed. Mm. And it's people think you just sort of, you know, get on with it the next day. And, mm. and that, I'm, I'm really proud of that discussion in the book. Yeah, I think so. And it's, it's honest where it needs to be. The fact that when you've had a miscarriage, your tummy's not necessarily going to suddenly go down. Things like that that people just don't really know or understand if they've not been there. As we say, it's not one for squeamish people, the book. Some of it I found quite difficult, I would say, but that may just be me. There are lots of stories about severed feet being flown back from Iraq in big trunks. There's details about hands sometimes have to be amputated, is that right, and sewn back onto a corpse in some sense, correct me if I'm wrong. But there are lots of ideas of limbs and bits of people. You detail the smell of a mortician. Colleagues prank each other, pretend to be dead on the gurney, etc. Is this just what you have to deal with? Do you develop a tough skin? One of the things with the book is it starts at the start of my career. So some of the things that are happening then are much less acceptable now. I don't, you know, I think there was a recent outcry about a pranking in a funeral director. I don't think you would see some of that behaviour. And I was very lucky, I think, because my career kind of collided with much more women in the industry, much more respectful experience. I still certainly encountered from colleagues all sorts of phobias and and, uh, bad treatment of gay colleagues and transphobia and all sorts of challenges in the the mortuary. But I didn't encounter perhaps some of the bad behaviour that had come before me. And certainly each year it got better. It's interesting with the the idea of the squeamish. I think Mm. generations that would have gone before us would wonder whether we have lost our connection to Mm, both our mm. own selves and also our dead. Mm. And actually it's something I still see in, say, if I go out to rural and farming communities, they are much more comfortable with, with kind of discussions of both, obviously, animal loss and behaviour but also they'll have had say industrial accidents and things I think there's a loss we're we're finding that we've forgotten what disease and death and injury look like and when you confront it when you go to those darker places it also allows you to reveal and discover things it was a very fine balance in writing it (laughs) and um, and I you know I I didn't want to sort of I didn't want to alienate people but I think it was important to explain what we are challenged with so that you can understand the effort that we go to. And that's particularly important within things like the care of the remains of the deceased. Mm. If I didn't Mm. describe why they're damaged, I don't think people would understand the work that goes into returning a loved one to a family. Absolutely. And I think it was the detail about the feet and it was the shoes that were actually too small. There were holes cut in them. Was that right? To sometimes accommodate soldiers' feet because they'd be in the wrong shoes. And this was from Iraq and this is desert heat and stuff. It highlighted the fact that there weren't enough provisions for the soldiers in the first place. Yeah, absolutely. So I was making a point there really about... You know, the least we can do if we're sending, you know, men and women into war is make sure that they've got kit. And mm-hmm. you know, people say to me what was difficult, and they assume that what you're, what you know, what you're finding difficult that day at work is seeing feet, and it isn't. It's realizing that they'd gone to war without the proper kit. That's a much more mm-hmm. what I call in the book a much more toxic nugget to carry around with you than anything you'll ever see in the mortuary. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. 
Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. One of the things we take from this, and you briefly mentioned it, is that bereaved families need items from their loved ones. They need parts and they need items. From the scene of the event, usually, it helps bring some sort of peace. There was at one stage a debate about giving victims' families certain items because there was a question whether if the victim had a magazine such as Loaded or FHM, whether the parents might want that. Can you tell me about the importance of giving back belongings? Yes, so... Often we can only return personal effects. We we may try and return body parts or or the body and certainly we try and offer the families as much choice as possible and they may view something very, very small. But if we have very, very little to return, we often will try and make sure we can return some personal effects all with choice. You know, we don't just thrust these Mm, at families. mm, This mm -hmm. is all a consensual discussion about what they might want. But one of the first things I do, absolutely first, in fact, I had a call over the weekend for a very, very small incident and it was the first thing I, said because they had everything else under control was you know where are the personal effects and what and who's looking after them because if you don't protect them at the scene and in the mortuary they're very vulnerable to being thrown away and then I, I can't you know get that mistake back so once we've got the personal effects we, we sit down with the families and we explain what condition they're in and then the families may ask for them back and these are very small personal items they're often a pen or a notebook, or shoes. We have had a growth of having to understand how digital mm-hmm. digital items play out. So that's uh, been a major learning curve for me. That's been one of the biggest changes in my career in the last decade. The average family we found was flying with, on average, three devices per person. So that had changed wow. our personal effects yeah. uh, approach quite yeah. consistently. The other thing that I talk about a lot is censoring items. So as you say there, that yeah. the, in two separate incidents, they responded didn't want to return FHM and loaded. Mm. They said they were like pornography and no family would want those back. And we actually found that it was the mums that had bought the subscription. In in all the feedback that was given Mm. back to me, they were very pleased to know that they had received their latest edition. Mm. The thing about the book is it's very much about the small comforts. And, you know, for somebody who's lost everything, you know, when you see how they treasure Mm. these personal Mm. effects that's the very least we can do. And because, as you say, digital devices get taken as evidence, but text messages and such are printed out and given to families. Yeah, so that was in with July the 7th. Yeah. People were just sort of experimenting, really, and people had things like Nokia 3210s and, and various sort of non, non-smartphone-type mm. phones then. And Counter-Terror Command wanted to keep the actual phone casing and, and also assess all of the data within, but agreed that the text messages could be printed out. Now we work with a number of data recovery companies mm. to do something similar. But that's always difficult, you know, for, a, for perhaps a 25-year-old person. Their parents are their next of kin, but they might not want them to, to see their text messages. But 
what we suggested was don't censor, don't try and restrict that. And actually the text messages show that the person often was living a very happy, full life right up until that minute. And again, that's a small comfort. Mm. As you've just sort of said, some major incidents are planned for. You say predictions for a global pandemic were the most diligently planned for risk in British history after the MERS and SARS outbreaks. Coronavirus didn't take everybody by surprise. No, I was corona girl. When I was working for the disaster management firm, we went out to Hong Kong and Macau for a commercial client uh, during the outbreak. So I had seen how Hong Kong managed SARS and that had stayed with me. Mm. We were managed Mm. in our hotel and if we spiked a temperature you were going to quarantine and all of these kinds of things. There was a huge bias, that's certainly true, in the UK plans towards influenza but that's sort of the plans that are are available and in PDF form. You know, the planning (laughs) takes many forms and a lot of that is in in what we call exercises. So we tested for a corona and also in 2014 we tested and trained for Ebola very extensively. Mm -hmm. So I was slightly surprised by the government's position that this was not known or couldn't have been predicted because it was on our you know it was it was on our lips for many years mm. i believe that when these exercises happen and big exercises do happen the lead call has to come through and it must say exercise 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 so that everybody knows that the emergency call is not real as such this didn't happen when the spice girls and elton john were on an ill-fated flight did it no it didn't and that was, <laughs> tell us about so that it's quite a a, a a bad form emergency planners trick to liven up what can be quite a boring <laughs> exercise scenario with a few celebrities mm. as survivors in the incident or in the manifest of the plane crash and so i got a call from a major airline overseas we would take the call in the office where I was working and it would be you know the plane has crashed we need to activate the full team and I took it and I ran upstairs and I said very um, sort of breathlessly to my colleagues you know my god this is terrible it's got Elton John on it's got all of the Spice Girls <laughs> and they said just ring them back and check if there's three words they should have said at the start <laughs> and those three words should have been exercise 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 and it happens all the time hospitals are terrible for it <laughs> so they'll run an exercise but they'll forget to tell you it's an exercise and we've seen we've seen like blood banks activated helicopter emergency services activated and you know some person has forgotten to say exercise we talk about the exercises what are they like I mean they cost millions of pounds don't they the big ones and they involve extras and people covered in pretend blood am I right yeah absolutely the really big ones can be very expensive I run a very cheap exercise (laughs) because I want to test people's minds Mm. and their compassion and their Mm -hmm. heart and that's that's free it's difficult but it's free Mm. you know so one really simple exercise I like to run with people who are running their business continuity plan so how would they keep going in a crisis is I just say how, how would you react on Monday if all of your staff won the lottery and they just don't come in and you get to test the same things as if as if there's been a catastrophe but you don't have to always explore some of the loss but one of the exercises that you know that I describe in the book was a huge one that we ran and sometimes there's huge amounts of kit put into it and we you know it's quite common practice for example to bribe students we uh, students are paid to lie there in their swimming costumes or to put fake blood on and we'll respond to them and that's one of the challenges in the reality of disaster planning Mm. is that the real survivors and the real bereaved don't exist and don't get to have a view on this disaster until it actually happens. They are the one blind 
group and mm. that's that's I think been very relevant for the pandemic because we wrote plans I think that would possibly assume people would be okay with messages like you know this is this is going to be really difficult and really big because our pretend students had sort of nodded along you yeah. know so a big yeah. test for me and I think we knew it all along but those exercises had a lack of reality built in. Your job is apolitical of course but yet you do discuss in the book the last few years in regard to disaster planning so budgets being scaled back. Can you tell us more about how politics and political policies do affect our response to human tragedy and what's going on now. Absolutely. I mean, disasters are hugely political and the disaster planner is sort of always in the middle. Mm. We often, I think, have a very strong sense of, of humanity and social justice, but we, we do try very hard to be apolitical. And of course, you will see in the book, you know, I've, I've been doing this as a career for 22 mm. years, so that's various regime change yeah. throughout. And that in itself has been difficult because even not just a new government, but a new minister will bring in a new direction to where they want emergency management to go. There is a bit of a plea in the book. You can see that austerity really does start to a bite on a service that people don't know about. So it's really easy to trim a service that people don't know is mm-hmm. there. So that was the first you know, cut that we really suffered was we just lost an awful lot of resource. And something like Grenfell obviously is something that becomes very political very quickly because, as say, some instance you can sort of foresee that at some stage there is going to be this, what kind of response should we, should we have? Yeah, and there's two aspects to Grenfell. I mean, as mm. a, it, it, it's a disaster that absolutely should have never happened. It's very similar to the disasters that brought me into the field. You know, it's the disasters yeah. of the 80s mm. and 90s, mm. what we call, you know, reasons, Swiss cheese model, an absolute failure at multiple levels. Yeah, yeah. And that was the pain that I came into the field on. I was at a lot of conferences with a, a wonderful group of bereaved mothers from all of those disasters in mm. the 80s and 90s mm. called Disaster Action. And so Grenfell was, it was a return very much to those dark days. It was a systemic failure that should never have happened. And then what happened, and I think it's very, very similar to what we've seen in the pandemic, is that the government presented it as a, a, you know, unprecedented, unique experience. Nothing like this has ever happened before. Let us sort of go on this journey together and actively didn't support the sort of disaster management and the disaster psychology and the disaster resource that we knew so well. There was a a, a sort of far too long a delay and almost, again, a very strong startle reflex Mm. as to how to help. And it's been a very, very long, painful time for those communities. And that's it's been incredibly hard to watch. Mm -hmm. What do you most like about the job? I've had to really reflect on that because after Grenfell, you know, there's a line in the book where I say very briefly, I gave up. And uh, I I really wanted to keep that line in because I wanted it to convey a thousand different things. Because at that point, I felt, and I know many in my field did, we felt that we'd utterly failed. But ultimately, what brought my love back was there is still a difference that you can make to communities. And then the last five or six years, I've worked a lot more with children after disaster. And that has been truly restorative. Mm-hmm. and helps you to see that what you say, you know, and I say very strongly in the book, there's a need for a horizon after disaster. Mm. Nothing 
convinces you more of that than seeing children who want their community restored to mm-hmm. some form of healing so that they can have some fun. So that, that's been my, those have been my happiest moments in the last few years. Mm-hmm. What is happening on Ukrainian soil right now in terms of recovery? Or are we not in that stage? So we are already looking ahead. Mm-hmm. There's not a huge difference sometimes between a conflict and a disaster. Mm. Um, one of the first things you see me describing in the book is about the SITREP, so the situational report that a disaster mm. planner does. They go in and they look at what, what's coming. And, it, you know, it can be very hard. And with, with the earthquake in, in Canterbury, for example, you need a geological report to tell you whether that area would ever be safe. And at the moment, we are in a bit of a limbo where we're waiting to see where the politics takes us mm. and what this means for the many millions of people displaced. I think, you know, looking ahead... This is this is a huge, obviously, looking right now, it's a huge humanitarian crisis that will we're in a stage that um, that we've sort of characterised in emergency planning as stabilisation, mm-hmm. and then we will we will move to to what next, and hopefully that will will mean restoring people to homes. The other sad part of my work, which I've already had some initial calls about, is usually after these sort of conflicts, one area where a lot of my colleagues get involved is we will need to manage and honour the war dead. And that's very similar to what you see in disaster. Mm -hmm. What's your advice to people listening who do want to help Ukraine? What should we do? Definitely give money if you can. If you've got things that you want to donate, give them to your local charity shop or sell them. This has been a bit of a crusade of mine. So that you know, the real thing for me has been donate money, not 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 van loads of items. Yeah. There's much more of a culture in America of awareness after so many hurricanes and tornadoes that the the donating of of, of stuff, as I call it on my social media, is so mm. unhelpful mm. as to be the secondary disaster. So I'm very passionate. Get involved by by donating cash at this point to mm-hmm. one of the the umbrella charities. Is the world a more dangerous place or is that an absolute total misconception? There's various trends and, uh, you know, as a disaster plan, we get a lot of insurance reports that say we're at greater risk than ever. And we are, you know, we are very, very much within the climate crisis as as disaster planners. But, you know, my own personal theory is that other generations would have wondered whether perhaps it's not that we're more at risk or more, there's more disasters. It's just how we're consuming them and how we're feeling about them. And I do wonder whether going forward, we'll need to get back to some some kind of older coping strategies. So we might need to think more seasonally. We might need to get ready for winter a bit more. We mm. might need to use summer to harvest and fallow. You know, there's some things that, that we could do, I think, to calm ourselves down because the world has always been perilous, which is a key point I make in the book. Yes, you do. And But the world didn't always have rolling news, which I think is part of That's definitely cycle. part of the problem. Yeah. There is much in this book about the power of a cup of tea which is really about empathy, why it's so important, as much as pragmatism. And you strike me as an enormously pragmatic person and the person who we really need in a crisis. <laughs> I know that you're a big fan of the cup of tea. It's such a, a, a moment of connection, making somebody a, a drink and mm. just, you know, what can I get you? And just looking after each other. And that, you know, I talked about Tom and the Tunisia script those are the sorts of things that we build in. So mm. when the survivors were coming back from Tunisia, the counter-terror police wanted to take them straight away into the interview room. And then there's somebody like me going, hang on, can we just check that they've got some clothes, yeah. they've had a chance yeah. to use the loo, they've had a chance to ring home, and that somebody's got them a cup of tea. And that shouldn't be rocket science, but 
you know, I'm never going to stop demanding mm. that I see it in a plan. Mm-hmm, absolutely. The book deals with some brutal truths about the way we manage major incidents and mass fatalities. Lucy, you write so engagingly. <laughs> this is not a dry book. Do you do your job differently now you've written all down, do you think? Will it change what you do? Yes, I think it will. I am very at peace that um, that it's it exists and the stories exist. Lucy, thanks so much for joining us on the podcast today. Thank you. When the Dust Settles, Stories of Love, Loss and Hope from an Expert in Disaster by Lucy Easthope. It's published by Hodder and Stoughton. Listeners, remember there's a new edition of The Bunker every morning except Fridays when Oh God, What Now is out. So please do subscribe. Thanks for listening. See you next time. Daily was presented by Sham Pattenden. The producers were Jacob Archbold, Yelen Sofonievich and Alina Ganatra. The lead producer was Jacob Jarvis and the audio producer was me, Jade Bailey. Group editor Andrew Harrison, theme tune by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker is a Podmasters production. <laughs>